Welcome to this podcast of the American Orchestra Forum, a program of the San Francisco Symphony. In celebration of the symphony's centennial, six leading American orchestras from Boston, Chicago, Cleveland, Los Angeles, New York, and Philadelphia visited San Francisco during the 2011-2012 season. In conjunction with these concerts, the American Orchestra Forum presented a series of wide-ranging conversations about the state of the orchestra, an institution with roots in the 19th century now adapting to life in the fast-changing 21st. Musicians, scholars, composers, executives, critics, and technologists gathered throughout the year to discuss three key topics, community, creativity, and audiences. Each chapter in this podcast series presents highlights from public and behind-the-scenes conversations by these experts and explores the themes that emerge. I'm Stephen Wynn, American Orchestra Forum moderator and your podcast host. Where does the marvel of musical creativity come from, and how does it work? What parts do muses and inspiration, intuition and the subconscious, hard work and happy accident play in the process? In this chapter, We'll examine the ways in which creativity can flourish, falter, and forge new pathways in the symphony orchestra hall, where a storied past and challenging future meet. Stories from composers, the artists who summon music out of silence, are the clear place to start on this complex and endlessly fascinating topic. In his book, Imagine How Creativity Works, Joan Allaire recounts the origin of Bob Dylan's famous song, Like a Rolling Stone. Burned out by touring, Dylan temporarily gave up writing songs. That's when his great hit arrived, unbidden. It's like a ghost is writing the song, said Dylan. It gives you the song and it goes away. You don't know what it means. For composer John Adams, another kind of productively puzzling impulse led to the composition of his Absolute Jest, which was commissioned by the San Francisco Symphony for its centennial season. Asked about the source and evolution of the work, Adams offers this frank and slyly puckish explanation. I actually cannot remember um, what, what gave me the idea of incorporating Beethoven. Uh, the, the piece is about 23 minutes long, and it, it actually uses only a couple of fragments of Beethoven. I, I haven't counted them, but I, I don't think it's more than eight, maybe 10. They say that when composers reach their late period. They get <laughs> involved in counterpoint. And so I guess I'm, I'm somewhere between Medicare and my late period. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I don't know what it is about counterpoint, but it really does seem to draw you in your dotage. Like any creative artist, Adams is sensitively tuned to the world around him. Influences and inspiration can come from anywhere. The composer recalls a San Francisco symphony concert that helped nurture and generate his initial idea, even as he quaked a little at the prospect. I heard MTT do Stravinsky's Polchinella, which I'm sure everybody here knows, a piece that Stravinsky based on uh, some Neapolitan music, not, uh, not all of it. Pergolesi, not all of it sure, by yeah, Pergolesi, yeah. apparently, but, but a lot of it. And I thought, well, that, that's actually a wonderful idea of one composer looking back over a period of 100 or 200 years and internalizing the music. Um, but when the idea of using the Beethoven, of course, using Beethoven is just really suicidal. If you think <laughs> about it, it's like you know, trying to play wiffle ball with Barry Bonds. I'm trying to do something that takes 
very, very highly recognizable musical signals, like bup, bup, bup. And obviously there's a wink there, and there is some humor in it, but weave them, incorporate them into my own musical language, and also give my own sort of spiritual identity to my experience with Beethoven. Here's an excerpt of the results in Absolute Jest, as performed by the San Francisco Symphony and the St. Lawrence String Quartet during the 2012 American Mavericks Festival. Jason Bates came at the writing of his work, Mass Transmission, through an apparently more consciously plotted course. Armed with a San Francisco Symphony Commission, the ex-choir boy first decided to write something for a large vocal ensemble and organ. Then he went in search of a text. His friend Adams, Bates recalls, had some advice. Go far afield for this text, you know, I mean, really look out there in the world, go online, get away from maybe some of the first stops that composers might normally choose, an E.E. E. Cummings poem or something. And in fact, I ended up finding that with this beautiful story of, of, a, of a mother and daughter communicating between Holland and Java. So, I mean, really, a lot of research had to be done to, to get to that point, but I, I really feel like it was, it was John who gave me the courage to, to look far afield. That wasn't the only new territory Bates set out to explore. For me, I feel like I have a, quite a bit of internal pressure to throw lots of things at the page, and I love that. I love setting hair on fire, and I like to have a dynamic piece that really uh, changes the rules of the, of the game. This piece is different for me because it is much more in kind of one breath. And I have to say that you know sometimes the thing that is hardest is, uh, in fact, always the thing that is hardest is the, is the simpler thing. By electing to tame his own hair-on-fire instincts and do the harder, simpler thing, Bates was enacting the kind of creative process Arthur Kessler describes as, quote, the fusion of two previously unrelated frames of reference, end quote. Bates puts it this way. It's always been a challenge to, to balance the needs of the form with the material that's living inside it. So the, the challenges of both the the ensemble and also just some of the things that I set up for myself with the, the story of the piece were, um, I think, new confrontations that I, I've enjoyed dealing with. Mass Transmission received its premiere at the 2012 American Mavericks Festival in a performance by the San Francisco Symphony and San Francisco Symphony Chorus. Here's an excerpt. An artist's choice of medium 
whether it's oil paint or watercolor, a sonnet or free verse, an orchestra or a solo piano, is an integral component of creativity. Form and content, medium and the artistic message are intimately, inextricably joined. How does that work when a contemporary composer elects to write for a symphony orchestra with its heavy mantle of history and cultural connotations? For John Adams, the inherent limitations are at once an obstacle and, as they have been for composers from the past and will surely be for others in the future, a potential gateway to creativity. It is a strangely arbitrary thing that every orchestra in the Western world has basically four flutes, four clarinets, six horns, whatever it is, 16 firsts, 14 seconds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because in a way that's, it's just basically been through trial and error that that's worked out to be a, a nice balance. But why not 20 oboes and four violas? I mean, there, there are acoustical issues, but there is a certain arbitrary thing about that. And it, we all as composers occasionally get very frustrated because we want a lot more of a certain kind of instrument and we couldn't care less about having a section that we don't want. But as a composer, you learn to deal with that. And, and unfortunately, in this day and age, players are so amazing that you can ask a cellist to play up in the violin range, and they're happy to do it. And there are many ways of making it fresh. You can do what Varese did, which is to just turn it into this just wild, you know, seething, herd of buffaloes and panting jungles, uh, you know, drums like you hear in an old Cecil B. DeMille movie or something, or you can do what Ravel does and create some incredibly gossamer, uh, atmospheric, erotic scenario. You can do all these things, but still you're working within a continuum, an acoustical continuum that is so highly defined on a certain cultural level that it does simply scare a lot of people away. Mason Bates, who grew up in part on rock music and often weaves electronic sounds into the orchestral fabric, views creativity in a dynamic continuum across styles and time and musical associations. The orchestra, like the artists who are drawn to it and the audience as well, must evolve together in an ongoing act of creative connection. I mean, it, it's changing, and it, it's not just changing in, in literal, you know, add instruments ways, you know, such as add electronics, or John's been using electronic sounds for a long time, or the, the tuning that came into infinite, into absolute jest. But even the new sounds that, that people will make out of 200-year-old instruments, it is changing, and, and there are new ways of thinking about it, and it, you know, on the one hand, the orchestra has this connotation. On the other hand, and I mean, some of the first music that I heard that had an orchestra involved was like Pink Floyd, The Final Cut, you know, psychedelic rock. The orchestra really is alive. Adams concurs. It is a world of an amazing flexibility and enormous uh, emotional range, which is why we do it. It's why I'm not a, a rock musician. I'm an or orchestral composer because I just think that the orchestra is capable of such enormous... Uh, expressive potential. No one has made a greater case for the orchestra's vitality in the 21st century than Michael Tilson Thomas, music director of the San Francisco Symphony, a staunch champion and composer of new music. MTT has stretched the possibilities of the musical experience across the cultural spectrum, 
from his work with the YouTube Symphony Orchestra to his use of projections and other concert enhancements with the New World Symphony in Miami to his vibrant Keeping Score videos. His fundamental creative work begins as a conductor whenever he picks up a score and sets out to produce the deepest and richest performance possible. Tilson Thomas describes how he goes about it. I try to work with the orchestra in the way that, somewhere between the way a director would work with a great group of actors, the way a coach would work with a team. But what I think a good director does not do, a good director does not say to an actor, say the first three words slowly and loudly, then say the next two a little faster, uh, then the next five sort of uh, whatever. You, because the whole point of it is, the, is that the actor must become the character believably in the same way that the musicians in the orchestra must be able to play this music of whatever composer of whatever repertoire in a way that is believable, that you understand what the message of the composer is, but at the same time you understand the ardency that is coming from the life experience of those live musicians who actually are alive and who are recognizing in these pieces their own lives and vice versa, and therefore able to make it comprehensible and, and meaningful and, uh, through the generosity of their spirits and what they share with the audience. And so my job is to try in whatever ways to make that happen. Conscious craft is essential for a composer, a conductor, or a musician. Creativity is a habit, as the choreographer Twyla Tharp says, and the best creativity is a result of good work habits. But it must tap something deeper, a kind of endlessly flowing river that connects composer to performers, orchestra to audience, past to present. Michael Tilson Thomas. The process of getting to know things about people through the creative work that they do is fascinating because I, as I also think about the arts as being a kind of dialogue between instinct and intelligence, between faith and reason, between the head and the heart. And there are different mixtures of this, different combinations of this in all the different works that are done, uh, by, in the case of music, by different composers, but also from different eras and time. And there's, there's an enormous amount to be learned about what it means to be human profit from the, the richness of that and in, in the growing of our souls, this is what I believe. Then, uh, as far as uh, working with lots of people uh, to try and get the most out of their creativity and get this all to come together, there is still a sort of, uh, and I'm not saying this in a religious sense, there is a kind of congregational aspect of our experience of the arts, whether that's people coming to concerts or to operas or going to museums. Not everything runs smoothly, of course. The creative flow can go dry, get dammed up, take unexpected twists and turns, and sometimes break through to open new pathways. Margot Dracos took an unforeseen route in the midst of her thriving career as a cellist with the Pittsburgh, Seattle, and San Diego symphonies. She explains. I loved the playing with my colleagues and trying to uh, interpret the composer's intentions with my own passions and experiences to communicate that hopefully in a powerful way to the audience. What I found was that there was so much disruptive change happening, uh, particularly, I would say, rather spectacularly in the performing arts field, largely by technology at the time. A lot of traditional business models were really kind of exploding. And there was a lot of doom and gloom in some of my 
my work environments as a cellist in a professional space. And, and I found it really depressing. And I kind of, I actually thought that there, while there were a lot of traditional models and, and disruption happening, I also thought there was a tremendous opportunity for kind of experimenting with that redefinition and redistribution of what community meant, what the role of an artist in the 21st century is, and kind of going back to the roots of interpreting your past and the past of our rich sort of cultural heritage and bringing that into the, the future today. Draco has put her cello down to co-found Instant Encore, a technology company that wires classical music artists and ensembles into today's audiences through websites and mobile apps. The circuits Instant Encore offers may be digital, but they're part of a much wider loop that creativity seeks. Music may begin in solitude, emerge with deep curiosity and hard work, and take shape in collaboration with others. But it only comes alive when it's performed for an audience, when an artist's inspiration touches and somehow alters the listener's consciousness. Margot Dracos. At the end of the day, you don't practice in your room your whole life to just play for yourself and, you know, four other people who share the same, you know, great detail about your appoggiatura or this oscillation speed of your vibrato. And ideally, you, you work on those tools as a mechanism to be able to communicate with your community and be relevant. I just can't imagine not thinking about my audience because to me the you know the act of making music is is the act of bringing something out of yourself and bouncing it off someone else that's john adams picking up the theme technique and tactics can only explain so much a kind of primal innocence is creativity's essential animating spark it's like a little kid coming home and saying, guess what happened today at school, you know? Mm. Um, it's really no different than that. It, you you want to see how you, your feelings and your thoughts and your perceptions um, resonate with other people. Music is above and beyond everything else, the art of feeling, much more than any other art form. I know a dramatist or a poet or a painter might come in and want to take issue with me, but I really think that the reason when we hear a piece, you know, people get really extremely emotionally affected. They can get very angry if it's a very dissonant piece, or they can get incredibly excited or, uh, you know, all you know, turned on by the Rite of Spring or, you know, patriotic mm -hmm. by Fidelio or whatever, but it's, it's because music's uh, getting to them on that uh, fundamental level of feelings. And that's what we do uh, as, as, as composers. We really are in the business of, <laughs> of communicating feeling. Michael Tilson Thomas's parting thoughts on the inexhaustible wonder of creativity turned to Beethoven and the powerful experience of communal transformation and renewal. So even from Beethoven and the Eroica, the, uh, the, it, it's great to know how the Eroica goes, but it's even more amazing to discover that the Eroica has one breathtakingly uh, original message, which is just to observe that things happen to us. We start out in a certain place, things happen to us. We get through those things, but we are never again going to be who we were before that happened. We may come back again to our sense of self, but all these occurrences, these moments of pain and turmoil have had their effect and that to some extent have had a deepening and enriching 
effect in our idea of our, ourselves and our own particular experience and purpose in life. We invite you to join the conversation with America's leading orchestras by visiting the American Orchestra Forum website at symphonyforum.org. There you will find blog posts, videos, transcripts, and more. The American Orchestra Forum is made possible by a grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The theme music is from John Adams' Short Ride in a Fast Machine, performed by the San Francisco Symphony and available from SFS Media on CD or as a download. This podcast is copyrighted 2012 by the San Francisco Symphony. I'm Stephen Wynn. Thanks for listening.